You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Text for today is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Thank you, Melody. You can be seated. And you can open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we'll be today. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, but uh, a nice ice-cold glass of lemonade just tastes a whole lot better after a long, hard day of work outside in the yard. You ever notice that? That these good things can be appreciated? I know I used used to get migraines quite frequently. And, um, you know, nothing like a migraine to kind of show you how nice it is to not have a migraine. And you can think of many other examples of that where... Some good and positive thing is appreciated more when it's gone or when its opposite is present. And I think that when, we, when, we, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it can feel a bit fanciful. It can feel kind of like this fable or fairy tale or just a, uh, an excellent ending. Um, and unless, unless we really deal with the reality of death. It, it's not an, the, 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 the sunrise is more beautiful when you've gone through a really dark night in the valley. And the resurrection is most glorious when we take the time to really think and feel about the reality, the curse, the pain of death. So we're going to spend some time in that kind of dark place this morning of meditating on death and how death began. That's going to be the title of our message, The Beginning and End of Death. Because there's going to be something that tastes so much sweeter to us in the reality of the resurrection if we've really felt the sting of death, the pain of death. And so I wonder if you can remember back to the time, I'm sure you can, when you first felt the sting of death, when it really hit home. I know you all have that moment that you can think of where where death really became real and devastating, and it changed you, didn't it? The experience and the nearness of death changed you. I can remember about 30 years ago, I was eight years old, and my cousin Brandon was going to come spend the summer with us. From, and uh, and he, was, he was getting into some trouble. And my parents just have a heart for kids that kind of get in trouble. And it was the best thing ever to have my 14-year-old cousin spend the summer. It was the best summer. It was just awesome. And towards the end of that summer, um, Brandon was on a trip with our church youth group to go to a concert. And the car flipped, some head trauma, and he was declared dead the next morning at Rapid City Regional Hospital. And I can remember vividly everything that happened in that time period, probably the worst day in my parents' life, I would guess, and uh, in our family's life, was the loss of Brandon. And I can remember that 
On my dad's side, my grandma went with from the other side of the family, went down to Denver. We're going to go to the funeral. And I can, remember my, I can remember my parents giving us kids the opportunity to either go to the funeral or go play in the park with grandma. And um, I just remember, you know, we decided to go play in the park. And, and uh, I just sat next to my grandmother and just cried because I had felt the sting of death for the first time. And that little boy was changed by the experience of death. And you all have stories like that. You all flashed immediately to a moment when you first felt the sting of death and it changed you, didn't it? And I think we need to be reminded of that. It's not like you needed the reminder. You probably feel that sting every day. And if we just told stories like that in this room, it would just be devastating the impact of death just on the people in this room, let alone down through history or our neighbors and our friends and our family members. Death stings like nothing else. And until we really feel the sting, the hurt, the pain of death, I don't know that we'll fully understand what all was accomplished for us in the resurrection of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want us to just continue our series through the book of Genesis. We had this beautiful portrait of how God created the world. He's good and he's glorious and he's generous and he's made this perfect world and he's put his image bearers in it and he has this covenant relationship with them he has his personal name he breathes life into them declares it very good and then we look at our lives and we go well where did death come from so we're gonna look at where death came from the beginning and end of death how did it get in how did it begin and how does it end and so i really got two main points for us today which is this death begins in adam And we'll explore that in Genesis 3. And then death ends in Jesus. Death has an expiration date, thanks to the resurrection of Jesus. And every great story that you read deals with the problems that we will see come into the the human story of uh, of an accuser, an attacker, a a villain, um, some people who get themselves into trouble, a disease, death. Destruction. Every great story that you know of deals with the human problems that we're going to see unfold in Genesis 3 and are resolved in the resurrection of Jesus. So you can just think, not just of your own story and your own experience of death, but think of all the great stories that you know and how they all are echoes of this one story of how death begins and ends and how God deals with it. So let's look at death beginning in Adam. Death is first mentioned by God in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, as a hypothetical, as a, as a, uh, a potential punishment for those that break covenant with God who disobey Him. Genesis two sixteen and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, You shall surely die. That's the first mention of death that comes up in the Bible. Is God giving a warning that the universe works a certain way, you're wired to work a certain way, and you go counter to that, and you will sign your own death warrant. It will be a treasonous suicide if you choose to go against this. It's a potential, a hypothetical, a warning, a consequence. It's intended to be a deterrent. But we see in Genesis 3 that this potentiality of death becomes a reality, and we want to look at how that happens. First of all, we see an insidious intruder. An insidious intruder in verse 1. So God declares everything very good. Man and woman are enjoying. They are 
uh, naked and unashamed. They are living in glorious communion with God and wonderful delights of the created world. And then we turn a corner in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we have to pause here and go, well, what is this? Who or what is this serpent? Is he a metaphor? Just sort of a legendary sort of metaphor, personification of evil. Is this a literal snake who can talk? Or is this Satan physically manifest? And this is just the best way to describe this event. Um, we see clearly here that the Lord God, this is a being that the Lord God had made. So this is not a rival equal to God. This is something that, this is a creature that has been created by God. So this is not a two equals, good and evil, as on equal footing. God is supreme even over this serpent. He is a created being. Unlike God, he has a beginning and he has limitations. So this is not a rival that is equal to God. This is a created thing. And we see that he's more crafty. So there's something about him that has a certain wisdom, a certain superiority to other non-human created beings. He has an intelligence, an ability, an awareness of consequences and the ability to manipulate circumstances either toward or against those consequences. And we have this play on words actually in the Hebrew. In, in chapter 2, verse 25, talking about Adam and Eve, it says that they are arumim, which means naked, which means innocent. Pure. And then we have the word crafty in 3.1, arum, which they sound so similar but mean so di- su- such different things. So we have this play on words from 2.25 speaking of the description of humanity to now the description of this serpent as arum, arumim and arum, crafty. The arum, the craftiness of the serpent, will undo the arumim of humanity. They will go from being unashamed to full of shame, from fully alive to now dead. The Arum will defeat and undo the Aramim of humanity. And here's some other relevant scriptures. When Jesus speaks uh, to the Pharisees, he tells them in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I think Jesus is referring to, this is the only passage that would make sense that Jesus is referring to, so clearly this serpent is Satan. It is Satan. And Jesus says, you're acting like your father, the devil, Satan, because of your lies. Revelation 12.9 tells us, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And then Revelation 22 says, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So if you look at the large totality of Scripture, Genesis 3, Moses doesn't take a lot of time to explain where this snake came from it's just not all that significant some of the questions we might have here don't really change the story that much but reading the rest of scripture we know that this is the fallen angel satan devil and whether he is just physically manifest in a form that looks like a snake or whether he actually inhabited possessed a physical snake i think it's hard to say bottom line is is that he's coming to destroy what god has made and he wants to undermine what god has said which brings us to the next part of verse one This insidious intruder brings a subtle suggestion. Now watch what he does to these human beings who are living their best life, their fullest life, in full communion with God, and this intruder comes in with a strategy. He's more crafty. He he wants to lead them to a particular 
consequence, a particular, particular action. And he starts with a subtle suggestion. Not an outright attack, we'll get there. But a subtle suggestion. He, Satan, devil, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? And there's just this suggestion planted in Eve's mind about the character of God. Notice that we have in chapter 2 have had the word Lord God throughout the text there. Lord God, God's covenant name. And then God, as he's creating humanity, there's this intimacy to where they know God's personal name. And Satan does not use God's personal name. He wants God to appear far away. And so he's going to portray God as a God who is distant and maybe a little bit underhanded and maybe not quite as intimate and close. And so it's, 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 uh, it's interesting here that he wants to distance Eve from God. The tempter speaks with inquisitive exaggeration. He, he puts the power of suggestion in her mind. He expands the prohibition from one tree to any tree in the garden. He says, did God actually say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? So he caricatures God and his command to make it sound far more restrictive than it actually was. How dare God? Did God actually say he would not eat of any other tree in the garden? God is a kind of killjoy and a tyrant, you know. Let's judge God in his word. Let's evaluate what he said as opposed to living under what he said. And so this questioning of God's word comes up. And Eve falls for it just a little bit. Look at her response in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And just pay very close attention to her response because the subtle suggestion has moved Eve a little bit. She's, she's stepped up. She's gotten a lot of things right in her response, but you see a subtle move here in how she views God and how she understands the, uh, the, the direction of God, the Word of God. She corrects the serpent, but the exaggeration does move her off the, trip, off the truth just a little bit. You see, if you compare what she says to what God actually said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you go from what God said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, which is a declaration of freedom, like, please enjoy all that I've given you. Look at how generous and glorious God is, but the woman changes it to say, we may eat of the free fruit of the trees of the garden. God's generosity is diminished a little bit here. And this is the danger of omission, to take away from God's word. will change our view of God. And then in the next phrase, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, God says. She changes it, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. And God never said anything about touching it. And so there's an exaggeration of God's prohibition and adding to the word of God, which is changing now. Her, her view of God has been shifted a little bit by this suggestion. God's a little less generous, a little less for me, and he's a little more restrictive. God's a little bit more of a legalist here. And then the last phrase, the third slight exaggeration, slight um, shift is that God says, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, in 2.17, to now she says, lest you die. So the certainty of God's judgment is now diminished. We might die, as opposed to we will surely die. God may not be paying that close attention, and, and maybe it's really not up to him to judge. Like, who is he to judge you? 
did he really say? And is he really that good? And who is he to say that he ought to be the judge? And so these questions are already in her mind. And as she comes back at the serpent, her view of God has changed. She has both omitted some of the good characteristics of God and added to, to portray God a bit more restrictive and maybe, maybe the punishment is just an empty threat. So Satan's clever question has changed Eve's view of God and his word. God is a little more distant, a little less good, and his word is a little less binding, has some flexibility in it. Which then Satan is encouraged at this point. The serpent then speaks just for the second time. He only speaks two times. He can take the whole thing out in two sentences. And here's what he says. He sees his opportunity. He sees that his suggestion has worked. Eve has a slight change in her view of God and his word. And therefore of herself. And so then he comes with a direct assault. She slipped a little bit. So now he's going to shove. He's going to shove her. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See how direct that is? God said, you will surely die. I say to you, you will not surely die. We've got two total different paths now in front of Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God has, this, Satan, this serpent claims to know God's inner thoughts and God's own inner insecurities at these human beings that he's made. And Jesus is, or God is actually a bit intimidated by you, a little bit afraid that maybe he would have a rival. And so this prohibition doesn't come from any sort of goodness in God, but from insecurity in God. He wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you, because if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. That's the only thing between you and God right now. The only thing that's keeping you from godness is your, is your willingness to obey God. Step out from underneath his authority and you will be like him. God is a liar. He is not powerful. He's not good. He has ulterior motives. God is not the good benevolent provider that he has portrayed himself to be, but he is a cruel, insecure oppressor. God's word is subject to your judgment and therefore you ought to reject it. And the serpent suggests that he knows God better than Eve does. Claims to know God's inner thoughts. Disobedience, Eve, will bring positive results. Happiness and fulfillment. You could have it so much better than you have it now. There will be no consequences. Something apart from God will make you happy. Is the bottom line. God is not sufficient to make you happy. You need something other than God. You need something instead of God. You need to go against God to be happy. Which, if you think about this, this is just unbelievable. The serpent has no evidence at all. Right? Adam and Eve have experienced nothing but good. The lie should be so clear. The overwhelming emphasis in chapter 1 and 2 of God's word is, is, is that his word is true. And that everything God does is good. That's the overwhelming evidence to this point in the book is that God is true. And does what is good. And in these two short statements, Adam and Eve now begin to see the world a little bit differently. And he's planted in the heart and mind of every human being ever since them. Every one of their descendants has had this mistrust of God. That maybe, maybe he's holding out on us. Maybe he's not all that good after all. And maybe we'd be better off if we just did our own thing. What Eve should have said is she should have said, we are already like God. 
You go in, earlier in the chapter, God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. She should have said to the sermon, we are as like God as we could ever be. Any move from this would be to just distance us from him. And it should have said to the, the servant, what evidence do you have for your charges? But the suggestion and the accusation has caused the desires of Adam and Eve's heart to change. And we see a deadly treason, a deadly treason in verse 5. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So you see it's the level of desire, like, you know, let me change your view of God and his word, and, and your heart will change. And she's now looking at the fruit the way that she used to look at God. Idolatry is happening here. Eve now looks at the fruit the way she should look at God and his word. There's two offers on the table. God's offer is the tree of life, and he's proven to back it up that every good thing comes from him. So take and eat of the tree of life, and he has been kind enough to give them the warning. You eat from that tree, and it's going to unravel everything. You're going to unleash this thing called death, and you will not like it. I trust you. Trust me. Stay in right fellowship with me. Eat from the tree of life. And the serpent is offering another contract, so to speak. Another offer is on the table. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. A tree of death. And he has no evidence at all for his claims. Suggestions, exaggerations, omissions, additions are all that he has to work with. And he has used those and man's view of God has changed. And man now has changed thoughts about God and therefore changed affections from the heart. The affections have moved from God to themselves. Their desires now trump what God has said. They desire what is forbidden instead of God. And here's the reality. You know this in your own life. What the heart wants, the mind will rationalize and the hands will do. Right? You don't make a lot of your decisions based on rational data. You desire something and then your mind finds a reason to do it and then you do it. Right? It's at, the, it's at the level of desire. We are not as rational as we think we are. We're desirers. We're lovers. We're worshipers by God's own design. And when that moves, those affections move from God to anything else, our mind will find reasons for why we do that. We'll try to justify it and we'll destroy ourselves. And that's exactly what happened. God, the serpent has changed the affections through suggestion about who God is and now the fruit is more desirable our own self-achievement apart from God is more desirable. Even the serpent is more desirable than God. And so they're going to rationalize it. It's good. looks good. It looks desirable. And so she took and she ate. She rationalized her decision. Doubt and desire lie at the heart of every sin. Just know that. This passage is, shows us where sin began, but it also shows us how sin works in our own lives. This is how it works for us. It works at the level of desire. Two lords, two covenants, two contracts, two destinies, two realities, two dispositions lay before Adam and Eve. And the, woman and Eve, the, the man and the woman ratify their agreement with the serpent against God by the phrase of take and eat. Take and eat. Mankind will, willfully, intelligently chooses death over God. And this is how it has been for every human being since then. And so the curse of death comes upon them. And I want you to notice that the temptation comes from the bottom up. 
It's from a creature under the dominion of Adam and Eve. So instead of looking up and being accountable to the one who is above them, they're now listening to one who is below them. And the creature comes not after the man, but after the woman. He wants to usurp the order that God created. God gave the command to Adam and gave Adam the speaking responsibility to defend and protect the garden. And the wife was to be a helper. And here we have it reversed. Now the woman is to be the keeper of the command and to speak to this serpent. And Adam is no help at all. So the roles are totally reversed. And Satan is doing this cleverly. He's more cunning than this because he wants to take the whole thing out in one shot. If you ever watch the Lord of the Rings and you see Legolas make one of those awesome shots and gets like three orcs at once. That's what Satan is doing. He has aligned this shot to where in two quick sentences he can take the whole creation down. He can hit, he can, he can, he can curse the creatures, he can curse the earth by, by getting Eve to usurp her role and to instead of being a helper for the man can be a hindrance to him, offers him the fruit. No help at all. And he advocates his responsibilities by speaking and protecting and coming to the rescue here and he doesn't. And Satan just has this brilliant kill shot. He gets the whole creation in one shot. It's a brilliant, brilliant strategy. And he didn't just get Adam and Eve and all of creation. He got all of us too. Billions upon billions dead in one lie, one act, one shot. He hit you and me and we still feel the sting of it, don't we? And we know it's coming for us. Because we're just like our parents. We have a warped view of God. We have warped desires. And death's coming for all of us. And that's a weighty thing. If you flip through the pages of your Bible, you'll see death on almost every page ever since. Until you get to the New Testament and you begin to see one, one who is promised later in Genesis chapter 3 that I believe Justin will bring to us next week and unpack for us, this promise that there will be one who crushes the head of the serpent, who is going to be capable of, of, uh, of restoring what has been lost, of being able to undo death. And so you have this tracing through the rest of the book of Genesis and indeed through the rest of the Old Testament is, is this the seed? Is this the one? It's, the rest of your Old Testament is just tracing this promise as it comes through, and you keep going, you go like, is it Moses? No, it's not Moses. Is it, is it David? No, it's not David. Is it Daniel? And you just go, no, not yet. It's not the seed. It's not the one. It's not the new Adam. It's not the one who can come and rescue this. And then it's just total silence for 400 years. And you wonder, is the promise gone? Has God finally decided to just let humanity have what it wants, which is death? And then you have a New Testament. A virgin is pregnant with a child. And she gives birth to that child in Bethlehem. And he starts to click off all of the boxes, all of the prophecies of the one who might be the promised one who could undo death. And if you would go with me to Matthew chapter 4 for just a moment, we'll see here that death ends in Jesus. And watch what Jesus does through the Gospels. Compare it here to Genesis 3 when what has been lost. Now enter Jesus. After all of this waiting, there is one who will come. Which just proves that Satan's lies were wrong. God does care. He is generous. He is good. Even a rebellious creation, he doesn't immediately obliterate them. The, Satan, the serpent was lying. 
And yet he promises to redeem them. And, and this is where Jesus enters. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen to this. And I want you to think of the parallels between Genesis 3. The temptation that the Adam and Eve had in the, in the garden versus the temptation that Jesus has in the wilderness. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So the tempter comes. But he said, Jesus, he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Eve quotes scripture, but misquotes it. Jesus nails it. Fights back with Satan with the word of God. A total trust in God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil told him, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That's exactly what Adam and Eve should have said. It's exactly how they should have responded. And what you have is that there has not been a human being on the planet who's been able to do this. To go one-on-one -on -one with Satan, no sin nature in them at all, to look Satan in the face and defeat him, to take down his lies, and Adam and Eve do it with home field advantage. They're in the garden. They know God. They have no category for sin or hunger or anything. And they lose on their home turf. Jesus goes into the wilderness after 40 days of not eating. He's on the verge of death. And Jesus in the weakest physical on Satan's home turf totally obliterates Satan. The new Adam is far more powerful than the old Adam. The old Adam brought death to the entire human race. And now there's one who's a son of Adam, but also a son of God. And when he's tempted, not in a garden with all the advantages on his behalf, but with all the disadvantages before him, undoes the serpent. Total mastery over him. Total trust in God's word. Total trust in God's character. And the curse now begins to reverse. And you see that through the rest of the Gospels. Jesus starts undoing the curse. And so humanity had their knowledge of God distorted, but Jesus knew God's word perfectly. Humanity had their trust in God's goodness shattered, but Jesus demonstrated ultimate trust in God's goodness perfectly. Humanity had their desire for, glory, for God's glory redirected. Jesus had only one aim, and that was the glory of his Father. Adam and Eve lost their home turf with every advantage. Jesus wins decisively on the enemy's turf. He invades and he wins on his weakest day. Adam and Eve fall on their best day. Jesus wins on his worst day. Jesus is the new Adam, the true Adam, the perfect Adam. The rest of the Gospels point out to him systematically undoing the consequences of Genesis 3. He heals diseases. He raises the dead. And so we're going to see that here. Jesus defeats death. And we see him do this, first of all, in John 11. We could go to a bunch of them because Jesus actually raises quite a few people from the dead. He defeats death. John 11... His friend Lazarus dies, and Jesus calls his own shot. I don't know if you remember back, Babe Ruth would point to the spot where he would hit the home run, and then he hit the home run there as legendary. Jesus calls his own shot. He's like, I'm going to let Lazarus die. 
And he tells his disciples, we're going to go to Lazarus and raise him. I'm glad that we were not there because what you're about to see is going to, you're going to, you're going to see and believe. And then he shows up and Mary and Martha are a little bit upset and uh, I forget which one comes to him, but says, if you had been here, he would not have died. Jesus, you could have prevented death. And then Jesus takes the opportunity and goes, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and he will never die. And then he goes and he grieves with them for a while. And then with two words, says, Lazarus, come forth, which is, I guess, three words in English. Lazarus, come forth. And death has to yield him. Some have said that if he hadn't said Lazarus, every dead person on the planet would have come out. His words have that much power. But he had to specify. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds great. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out and he defeats death. And he does this again and again. He has the ability with his words to undo death. Just think about that. Just think of like the day, all the death that you've experienced. Jesus has the power to just, it's done. Let him go. Come out. And then Jesus defeats death. Read the end of every gospel. Jesus calls his own shot again, but better. Not only can he raise other people from the dead, but he says, I will die and I will be raised on the third day. He has the ability to raise himself from the dead. For God to raise him from the dead. And that's what we celebrate at Easter. The Good Friday, he dies on the cross for sin as an atonement for sin because sin requires a reckoning. And he pays that, though he has no sin of his own. And then he rises from the dead to prove that, he, that, the, that the check cleared, so to speak. God received the payment. God received the atonement that Jesus Christ himself made. And he rises from the dead to prove that, hey, the snake crusher's here. The death killer is here. And then we see that Jesus defeats death in 1 Corinthians 15, where we get this brilliant explanation. Sarah read it to you. And I just want to highlight it to you again here in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 23. And notice this Genesis 3 and the resurrection of Jesus, how they overlap and what that means for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 23. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ's resurrection was a down payment. You've made a down payment on a house. It's a promise that you're going to pay the rest of it. And here's what it is. Jesus' resurrection is a promise that he'll resurrect you as well. He will resurrect all who look to him in faith. Further down in 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49, it says this. Paul, meditating on the passages we've looked at today, as it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. The first Adam had to come and fail first. And then the spiritual man who can come and redeem what has been lost. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, God incarnate. To come and do what man in and of himself could not do. As was the man of death, so are also those who are of the dust. Uh, as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Resurrection is available. 
is certain for those that trust in him. And listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on imperishable, when those that are destined to die put on by faith the promises of resurrection, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There will come a point where death, the sting of death will be over. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus defeats death. He defeats death. So the sting you feel of death right now has an expiration date because of the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, you grieve and hurt now, but there will be a day when that wound will be healed. There will be a day when that wrong is righted. And Revelation 21 and 22 tells us that Jesus will finally defeat death. The sting will be gone. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Eden will be destroyed, er, restored. <laughs> it was destroyed. It will be restored, but better. It's going to be a city. Where there was two people, now there will be multitudes of people. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And look at what it says. As it just describes where those who trust in Christ are going. This place of final victory. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither. There's more. That's good enough. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In other words, death died when Christ rose. One more chapter over. At the very end of the book. Then the angel showed me, Revelation 22, 1-5, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, oh, it's back. But it's better, it's got 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. It's like those like different fruit of the month baskets, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, from the wounds of death. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His serpents will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of sun or lamp, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we put these pieces together, and we go from an insidious intruder to the defeat by a divine incarnation. A subtle suggestion deconstructed by the authoritative word of God. A direct assault demolished by a substitutionary death. A suicidal treason destroyed by a historic resurrection. And from the dead of one, the dead, from dead in one act to fully alive forever in one act by one man. This is amazing. If it's true, this changes everything. And I believe it to be true. If the resurrection is true, then every statement that the serpent said was a lie 
If the resurrection is true, God is indeed extravagantly generous. Is he not? He gave his own son. I love you, but I'm not giving my sons for you. God did for you. If the resurrection is true, then there really is nothing man can do on his own to get out of the consequences of the fall. We're all stained. We all have the death sentence on us. There's nothing we can do on our own to get out of it. How can we undo the curse ourselves? Our hands are dirty. We can't do it. If the resurrection is true, then this holy God should purge us immediately. But he doesn't. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus really is God in the flesh. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is both the most wicked day in all of history and the most glorious day. The murder of the Son of God flipped for the salvation of mankind. If the resurrection is true, then everything Jesus says and promises is rock-solid reality. If the resurrection is true, then death itself is dead. If the resurrection is true, then Christ is Lord and King over all. If the resurrection is true, you can be saved from your sin and live forever with that same Christ in glory. And you will see the undoing of death before your very eyes. You will see it undone before your very eyes. That's all what we're celebrating today and celebrate every Sunday is that if Jesus is raised, all of this is true. So today, if you hear his voice, respond in faith to this message. There's no better message in the whole world, especially in light of death, is there not? What other options do you have to defeat death than this? Look to the cross as a payment for your sin. Look to the resurrection as a foreshadowing of your own glorious resurrection. Death began with Adam, continues with every human being, but ends fully and finally in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May death not have the final word over your life. May Christ set you free from fear and doubt and shame and guilt and death. Every other religion holds out the hope of a consolation prize. Christianity alone offers a reward that far surpasses what has been lost. You get kind of a secondary thing in other religions, but you get something even better in Christianity. Resurrection and perfection. And Jesus' resurrection is the down payment. So friends, if your heart aches today because of death, there is something very right about that. Death is an awful, terrible curse. But the resurrection of Jesus is historically certain, and that means the ache is only temporary. The pain is almost over. We're almost there. Look to Christ, the only one who can do anything about the death problem, and thank God that he has indeed killed death forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for the resurrection. What an awful day Genesis 3 was. Every single one of us has been stung by death and has more stinging in front of us. And God, we thank you that you cared enough to not give up on some rebels, but to graciously prove that all the lies were false, that you are a generous, good, and gracious God, and you came and dealt with the problem yourself. We thank you that you defeated Satan where we failed. You overcame temptation where we fell. You overcame sin that has enslaved us. 
You have gone to the cross so that we didn't have to. And you rose from the dead because you longed to raise us too. God, I pray that every heart in here would find that so beautiful that they would have the desires of their heart, their view of God, rearranged because of what Christ has done. That what distorted the view of God in Genesis 3 would be corrected by viewing Christ on the cross and resurrected. I pray for my friends here, God. I pray that all of us would trust in Christ and see death undone before our very eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.